Beloved, it is very clear from Scripture that we serve a merciful God. God makes it clear that he has a special place in his heart for widows. Uh, Even as we did our public reading of Scripture before from Mark chapter 10, we know that Jesus had a special place in his heart for children. It's a good reminder that there's a place for children in the economy of God. Uh, The context of Mark chapter 10, the verses that we read, verses 13 through 16 before, is it comes right after the occasion where the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes and Pharisees, have been trying to entrap Jesus by asking him loaded questions about divorce. The hostility and the enmity and the violence in their hearts is escalating even as he's headed towards the cross. And it was out of that backdrop that even we read before, Mark 10, 13, they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them and the disciples rebuke them. You see, in that culture, in that religious culture of the nation of Israel at that time, no respectable rabbi would waste his time on a child under the age of 12. The reigning thinking was that among the male leadership of the corrupt leadership of Israel at that time was women and children were really non-entities. And so his disciples, while they were following him, they were like us, a work in process. They were still very confused on a number of different things. And they thought Jesus had more important things to do than to spend his time blessing little children. They thought he needs protection from these bothersome munchkins. But then in verse 14, we read, When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. And in fact, there's an urgency where he basically says, Permit them now at once. Let them come and stop hindering them. So he gives a picture of his heart towards children. And as we would desire to have more of the mind of Christ as it's revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, as we would want to have more of the heart of Jesus as we understand it, it is a reminder to us that we are to welcome children. We are to be concerned about children, to care for children, to show kindness to children. And we are to understand that serving children is a great metric to demonstrate where we are at, to demonstrate whether or not we are here to serve or to be served. There's no payback. There's no recompense in serving children or living for children. Beloved, children in our midst, young children in our midst are the mission field in our midst that drives home the importance of children's ministry as, of course, a complement to the main ministry, which is the ministry, the shepherding ministry of mother and father, And sometimes when there aren't any even believing parents, we have the blessing and the privilege to minister the word of truth to these young ones. And Charles Spurgeon talked about bringing children to Christ in the same way anyone of any age would come to Christ, by teaching them the truth. And he said, hence, Sunday schools, the use of the Bible, family prayer and instruction at home. And then he said, direct quote, Spurgeon said, Sunday school teachers... You have a high and noble work. Press forward in it. If I know the teachers of the school, I know you're trying to bring your classes to Christ. Let Christ be the sum and substance of your teaching in the school. Young men and women, lift up Christ in your classes. Lift him up on high. 
And if anybody says to you, why do you talk to children in a manner like this? You say, because I long for their conversion, end quote. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We are in the middle of this section that goes from Ephesians 5.22 all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, where the Apostle Paul, where God through Paul, to the Ephesian believers and to any believers in any land, tongue, tribe, or nation at any point in time, is giving great instruction on relationships between wives and husbands, between children and parents, and between slaves and masters, or employees and employers. And in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6 is where we come to the second couplet, the second pair of these three pairs of children and parents, or children and fathers, as he says in verse 4. Beloved, hear the word of God beginning in verse 1. Our scripture texts this morning are just the first three verses, but I'll read all four verses to set the stage for this. Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend into your, in your heart to it as such. Now, again, what we have here is we have six different people in three groups of two each. In each case, Paul addresses the member of that group that is to be the one in submission to the latter one, because at the core of all three of these groups, at the core of all of this teaching from 5.22 through 6.9 is the heart of human relationship and organization, namely authority and submission. So whether it's family, marriage, parent-child, work, even government, Paul doesn't do it here, that is the heart of human relationship and organization is the principle of authority. And what Paul does is, again, he addresses a subordinate member first and then the one with the vested authority from God to be wielded well in a sacrificial manner in the second group. And it was interesting when we looked at verses 22 through verse 33 in Ephesians 5, we saw there that Paul addressed the husbands with three times the amount of text that he did the wives. Three verses for the wives and then nine for the husbands. And I think the reason is pretty self-evident. Probably don't need to explain too much just by virtue of human experience. It's interesting here, he flips it around and he uses only one verse to address the fathers, is who he talks to specifically in verse 4, and then three verses to the children. And I think the reason behind that is it's because surely the, as the mothers are with the fathers, which we will find in the text in the first three verses, that he probably doesn't need the amount of time because the mothers are there to help the fathers. But in any event, beloved, what we see in these four verses is that the child-parent relationship is to be marked by love, trust, and obedience. And in the context of the culture in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, which is very similar to our culture even here today, this is in the face of an antagonistic culture and compromising churches. You see, the world wants autonomy. And the world will seek to tear down any structure that gets in the way of the desired autonomy. And 
The message the world, beloved, increasingly wants to jam down the throats of everyone, including the children, is namely, you are born without reason, you're prolonged by chance, you should fear any risk, and that's especially coming true now, and you will die without significance. That is the hopeless message of the world, because the world wants the desires of the flesh. The world wants that autonomy. And that's such great contrast to the message God gives us in his word. We saw that from the heart of Jesus in Mark 10. Or even David reflecting to the Lord and David erupting in praise to God from his time in the womb, from David's time in the womb all the way out. In Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, King David write these words. You may remember them. He said to God, you formed my inward parts. You weaved me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. End quote. Beloved, that is the word of God describing the value and the essence of the worth of humans, where we are born with a reason, we're prolonged by sovereignty, we should fear nothing but God himself, and there is great significance in the death. Precious in the sight of God is the death of his godly ones. Beloved, following along as I read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. God says through the Apostle Paul, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I guess I am so enraptured by this passage, I wanted to read it twice in your hearing. But that's okay. It is the word of God. It never returns void without accomplishing what he would have for it. Uh, Beloved, what we'll see here in these three verses is we see two commands. We see a command to obey and a command to honor. And then we see three motivations given by God. And what's interesting is even the word, we'll unpack this a little bit here, but the word that he uses for children basically speaks to all of us. Everyone, not, well, let me say this, not everyone here has children, but everyone here is a child. Everyone here has parents. You may be like me where your parents are no longer on this earth or maybe one or both, but all of us have parents, all of us are children, so these verses speak to us. Verse 1 speaks more to the younger children under maybe the age of 18 where the children are still under the authority and the dependence have dependence from their parents, but verse 2 speaks to every child, regardless of age and regardless of where you're at in terms of even being out of the house, perhaps even for many years. But the three motivations is you are to honor and obey your parents because you were created, because you are commanded, and because you will be rewarded all by God. The first motivation, beloved, is you are to honor and obey your parents because you were created by God. 
And what we have in verse 1 is the Apostle Paul appealing more to the created order, to the natural law, simply to the kind of axiomatic understanding that anyone, in fact, all of God's creation would testify because it's right. It's right for the child to obey the parent. We could say that creation demands it. You see, <clears throat> marriage we know from our journey through chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, marriage is magnificent because, as we saw at the end, especially of the last verses, because marriage points to something magnificent. And the way in which the Apostle Paul started the whole treatise, though, was because in the Garden of Eden, marriage was magnificent at the human level as ordained and intended and planned by God. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, on the day six of creation, we see this come out. In verse 26, we read that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see there, there is great dignity in the creation of man. That there is a massive difference. We saw, even as this fed into Paul's words of exhortation to the wives and husbands, to be sure, there is great distinction and difference between male and female, but there is a far vast greater difference between man, the apex of God's creation, being made in the image of God, and all the animals. So there is great dignity, there is great distinction. But then in verse 28, what we see here is the very first of very many blessings that come from marriage is children. In verse 28, Genesis 1, you see these words, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. This is the creation ordinance. Filling, this filling of the earth, this procreation, this having children is a command from God and a blessing from God. Now, now of course, on this side of the fall, not every married couple is able to even have children. But we know that that is the blessing and that is the plan and the intention from God. And this ties in because if you look at the words to the wives and the husbands, Paul began his exhortation to the wives by appealing to creation. Paul wrapped up his exhortation to the husbands again by appealing to creation. And that's precisely what he does here in the first verse when he gives these words to the children. He says, children. And I, I mentioned this before, but the word children here doesn't mean young children. It's actually a different word translated as children here than, for example, the Greek word that was translated as children in Mark 10.13 when the children were coming to Jesus. The children in Mark 10.13 meant younger children, little children. But the children, the word here in Ephesians 6.1 means a child of any age. It would include young children, younger children, young adults that are still under the authority and dependent upon their parents and a child of any age 
Uh, so that is why we understand that these words are for all of us. But when we tie that together with this first word of obey, that's where we see that it is talking about children that are still, in a sense, tied to the apron strings of their mother, of their father. So this could be adult children over the age of 13 that are redeemed, that are saved, that are part of the body of Christ. This could be younger children, some of whom may be saved or some who aren't saved, but they are in the household of believing parents. Or this would be any child, maybe a child outside the visible church with unbelieving parents that God God is drawing to himself, or maybe God is already saved. So these words go to any child anywhere who might hear these words. And what he says is, obey your parents. Obey your parents. Now, the word obey in both the Hebrew and in the Greek basically is a derivative of the verb to hear. Here in the Greek, it's an intensified form of the word translated here. It literally means to hear under your parents, to be under the teaching of your parents, to hear and to heed and to obey, to come under what your parents are saying. And it's a stronger word. So to the wives, to the children, and then later to the slaves slash employees, you see all these exhortations consistently to submit but the verb that he uses here it's a stronger word for the children for the wife it's and carries a sense of a voluntary placing yourself under the loving leadership of your house of your excuse me of your husband but here to the children to the younger children he just says flat out obey your parents and notice here he says parents so in verse 4 when he gets to the one with the vested authority, he will zero in on the leadership structure even within the household and talk to the fathers. But here he says, parents. In other words, younger children, obey your father and obey your mother, both mom and dad. And that's the same kind of teaching that, for example, Solomon, when Solomon wrote Proverbs 6, verse 20, he said, my son, Observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Obey both mother and father. Honor mothers and fathers. We'll get to in verse 2. And by the way, the grammar behind this command to obey means continual and habitual. It's standing orders for you young men and you young women. We could put it this way from the parent perspective. When you're in my chow line under my house, you are to salute and to execute (laughs) what I ask. Now, and even in terms of good wisdom with parents, when the question that is to be expected will come, well, why? Why? And there's a place for that. So there is a place, and at times you will give the reason why, because you want to shepherd the young urchin along. But then there will be other times a wise parent will say, because I said so, and that's all you need to know. Because God says his word to us, and that settles it. And the obedience to the parent is the training ground for obedience to God. He says, obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord, very important phrase. I'm gonna table that, put that aside for a moment. We will come back to that later. 
Obey your parents in the Lord. And then he says, for this is right. And this is where he is really getting into appealing to the foundational from the beginning order of God's creation. For this is right. This, it's, it's righteousness. Uh, this word translated as right is translated as righteousness. It's more often than not throughout the Bible used to describe the character and the nature of God himself. Because God is the essence of righteousness. What God says is righteousness. God is the one who says and declares what is right and what is wrong. And so the point here is from this foundational, even creation order of being born to your mother and to your father, when you obey your parents, you're obeying and pleasing the Lord. John Stott, the commentator and pastor, uh, said this about this dynamic of this appeal to this kind of general revelation and general axiomatic understanding that all of creation really attests to. He said this, quote, Child obedience belongs to the realms which came in medieval theology to be called natural justice. It doesn't depend on special revelation, meaning uh, written word of God. It's part of the natural law which God has written on human hearts. It's not confined even to Christian ethics. It's standard behavior in every society. Pagan moralists, both Greek and Roman, taught it. Stoic philosophers saw a son's obedience as self-evident, plainly required by reason and part of the nature of things. And the point here, end quote, and the point here is part of God's created order, the one brought into the world obeys the one who brought them into the world. And not just in the human realm. The mother bird takes the little bird and teaches the little bird how to flap her wings and how to fly. The mother deer teaches the little fawn how to stand up on the shaky legs and to take the little steps and struggle and to walk. And as Stott noted, Virtually all human civilizations have regarded parental authority as indispensable to a stable society. And I'm going to cite and quote from two giants on the stage of human history from 6th century B.C., Confucius and Pythagoras. They were contemporaries, or I should say Confucius was a contemporary to Pythagoras. I'm kind of betraying my engineering math background, but... That's a side point. But here's what Confucius. Confucius taught that children are to respect their parents and to do as they are told, to honor and to obey. Pythagoras. Pythagoras was the first man, many think, to call himself a lover of wisdom, a philosopher. Many mathematical and scientific discoveries are attributed and credited to Pythagoras. The Pythagorean tuning, the five regular solids, the theory of proportions, the sphericity of the earth, the identity of the morning star and the, Ven and the uh, evening star as Venus. And he was the first to divide the globe into five climactic regions, or uh, yeah, five climatic zones, I should say, which actually is still used even to this day by climatologists. And, of course, my favorite, the Pythagorean theorem, that the square of the hypotenuse equals the sum of the squares of the sides on a right triangle. But I digress. The main point here, beloved, is Pythagoras, the great mind, said this, that he considered the child's gratitude, love, and obedience to parents to be right, and he used the word, it was an earlier form of Greek, but he used the same word that Paul uses here in Ephesians 6, verse 1. So that is the standard general revelation dimension that Paul is 
bringing out. By virtue of you being created for God, by God, you should obey your parents. And as mentioned before, this is in the face of an antagonistic culture and society. King Edward VIII, he was the king of the United Kingdom from January to December in 1936. He was the shortest reigning monarch before he abdicated the throne. He said this about his experience with American children. He said, the thing that impresses me most about America is the way parents obey their children. There's another quote. Uh, this quote, some people, some sources seem to attribute this to Milton Berle, who was a 20th century comedian. Time Magazine attributed this quote to an unnamed teacher. So wherever it came from, this is what the quote said, because it's a good one. It said this, quote, the teachers are afraid of the principles. The principals are afraid of the superintendents. The superintendents are afraid of the Board of Education. The Board of Education is afraid of the parents. The parents are afraid of the children, and the children aren't afraid of anything, end quote. <laughs> Beloved, the United States of America, even as we see it today, I think is in danger because those who never learn to obey are in command. That's from human history, but from a scriptural standpoint, this is a big deal. In Romans chapter 1, you may remember the Apostle Paul is going through three layers of rebellion against God, going from bad to worse. And finally, when he gets to the third level, where he is basically describing people that have become spiritual sociopaths, this is what he says, Romans 1, 29 through 31. The Apostle Paul writes, they are being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. When Paul was writing his last letter to Timothy when Paul was writing from the second Roman imprisonment while awaiting execution and when he was describing that things would go from bad to worse for Timothy and for all of us to understand that even what we're seeing today before our very eyes we should not be surprised by it. This is how the Apostle Paul describes the last days in 2 Timothy 2, uh, 3 verses 1 and 2. He says this, realize this that in the last days Difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Beloved, again, young men, young women, this is a big deal. And God commands you to obey your parents. You don't obey your parents because they're infallible. You obey your parents because the word of God is infallible, and God commands you to do so. Now, Having said that, it, this has the same qualifiers as we looked at even with the wise or we'll look at with uh, the employees or in other passages, Colossians and elsewhere, where we are instructed to submit to the governing authorities. So, for example, if the state forbids what God commands, we are to disobey. If the state commands what God forbids, again, we are to disobey respectfully and with wisdom and winsomeness. Same thing if the husband commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. Same thing with the parent as well. With wisdom and respect, the child would 
graciously seek to disobey. And there's many examples. King Hezekiah was one of the very good kings in the nation of Judah. And Hezekiah rejected the upbringing that he received from his evil father Ahaz. Rather, in 2 Kings 18, verse 3, we read this. He, Hezekiah, did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David has, had done. Actually, his great, 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 great grandfather David. That's from a biblical standpoint. A classic example at, in a modern time now we can think of is you can imagine a believing young man or young woman that God has saved and they understand that God has commanded them to be baptized. And this young man or young woman who are still living with their parents and unbelieving parents in this uh, situation and the unbelieving parents forbid them to be baptized. Well, Christ does command that, but in a situation like that, prevailing wisdom could say, well, baptism can wait until you come of age, until you get to the point where you are financially independent and no longer under the authority. However, the unbelieving parents may say, you are forbidden to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in your heart. In this latter situation, that is a clear case where I'm sorry, I must disobey you. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. I will follow after him. Now, having said this, and maybe let's escalate the age a little, little bit. Let's say this young man or this young woman has grown up, is long out of the house, got baptized, and is still following Christ. Well, if you have unsaved parents, you foster and encourage the natural ties with them. You call them. You love them. You might spend Thanksgiving, Christmas with them. You welcome them into your home and encourage their grandchildren to love them. Now, I understand there's all other kinds of different potential dynamics that sin can be brought to bear. There are abusive, uh, abusive fathers, abusive parents. There are grandparents that may be risky to the children. I, I get all that, but generally speaking, you honor your mother and father despite the age. And beloved, children obeying their parents is a big deal to God. And the point here is this. If you can't obey the God-ordained authority in the home, you'll be no good to the community. You'll have serious issues even in your employment. There was a famous child physician who said this, quote, when it comes to serious illness, the child who's been taught to obey stands four times the chance of recovery than the spoiled and undisciplined child does, end quote. Now, I'm ex not exactly sure where those statistics came from. Uh, one person said 42.6% of all statistics are made up on the spot. But I will say this, whether it's four times, two times, whatever the case may be, we know from Proverbs that sin has impact on one's health. And whether it's anxiety, depression, rebellion, more overt things like alcohol abuse, et cetera, et cetera, you get it. But, but sin, even internalized sin and rebellion impacts the health. So whatever the true statistics are from that, that is in the right stream flowing in the right direction but more importantly to the point is how can a child love and obey a God whom they haven't seen if they don't love and obey their mother and father whom they do see that's why Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 27 verse 16 cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother Solomon wrote in Proverbs 20 verse 20 he who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. And then in Proverbs 30, verse 17, the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. Again, 
If you can't obey God-ordained authority in the home, you won't obey God. It's interesting, in the companion, almost parallel book and letter when Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, Colossians, in Colossians 3, verse 20, the apostle Paul gave a very similar charge as he did to the Ephesian church here in 6, verse 1, but he adds a different dimension there. In Colossians 3, verse 20, Paul wrote, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So, no exceptions, complete obedience to the parents. With, of course, again, the qualifier, the proviso that we brought out before. And he adds, it's well-pleasing to the Lord. And I'll close this section with a good application from a commentator that began with the Christian child and then expanded out from it. The commentator wrote this, The Christian child should be a better child than any other child. The Christian husband should be a better husband. The Christian wife should be a better wife. The Christian family should be the best type of family in the whole world. The Christian businessman, the best businessman conceivable. The professional man, the best man in the profession. Then he qualifies it and he said, I don't mean this in the context of ability, but in all other aspects. Everything the Christian does should be done with all his might and with a thoroughness and with an understanding which nobody else is capable of. So even if you're a young child here, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, and God can and does save people at a young age, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, and they will give you an awareness and an understanding that other people can't have. Maybe you're just a young child, you're not sure where that's at. If you're here with parents that love the Lord and are seeking to train you in the fear and the instruction of the Lord, you have a wonderful example to follow as you seek to obey them as they obey the Lord. Well, the first motivation to obey and honor your mother and father is you are created by God. The second motivation is you are commanded by God to honor and obey your parents. Creation demands it. God commands it. It's not only essentially right, but it's one of the Ten Commandments, and in fact, it's a very important commandment. You see, the gospel doesn't do away with the law that God had given to the nation of Israel. The gospel, Jesus Christ, fulfills the law. So we can say it this way, the kind of general revelation, the foundational creation ordinance of verse 1 is you honor and obey your parents because it's right, and you honor and obey your parents because it's written. You move from the natural law to the revealed law, from the general revelation of just what we understand even from mother birds and little birds to the special revelation that God had given to the nation of Israel in the fifth commandment. And by the way, this is the one where all of us, all of us fall under this camp. We are to all honor our father and mother. Verse 2, honor your father and mother. Again, the fifth commandment taken from Exodus 20, verse 12, Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. To honor, to to love, regard highly, show respect, show consideration, to assign value and importance, to give place and priority. And even to kind of, to go from verse 1 to verse 2, we could say it this way. Honor is the inward attitude that leads to the outward act of obedience back in verse 1. It's duty on the outside and delight on the inside. 
It's not like the little guy, the, the, the young little guy whose you know, mom or dad told him to sit down. And he sat down, but he said, well, he goes, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. No, 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 that won't do you. And you need to do the outside first and have the inside try to catch up to it. But the goal is to be sitting on the outside and sitting on the inside. And you honor, again, you honor both parents. In verse 4, again, God will zero in on the fathers when he gives the responsibility. But here, it's father and mother. And in the same way, there's no, there's no qualifier. He doesn't say honor your father and mother if they're honorable. No, in the same way, husbands are commanded to love their wives. Even in the rare statistical anomalies where there might be a wife that's unlovable, the husband is to love the unlovable. Uh, the wife, in verse 33, is commanded to respect her husband even if he's disrespectable. So also, children, child, Older or younger children, you are to honor your father and mother, even if they are dishonorable. Now, there can be wisdom in terms of what that looks like, but that is God's command to all of us. Also, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we understand the first four commandments were commandments to man directed towards God. The latter six commandments were man to man, more directed towards the horizontal level. So this is the first. The fifth commandment is the bridge between the first four commandments of man's responsibility towards God and the latter five commandments of man's responsibility towards man. And what's amazing is this one, this fifth commandment to honor father and mother, come before adultery, come before murder, come before stealing. This is very important. And it's because the relationship of parent and child should always remind us of the relationship of God and Christian. Parent and child, God and Christian. In fact, the Hellenistic Jewish philosopher Philo said this, he said this, quote, parents by their nature stand on the borderline between the mortal and the immortal side of existence, end quote. Now he was appealing more to just the general part of creation, but that's a great passage because that captures in an essence of God's special revelation, even of the 10 commandments. So again, this concept of obeying and more to the point here, honoring father and mother is massively important because it's directly linked to honoring God. And by the way, in the nation of Israel, this was so important is that this was one of the capital punishment offenses for a recalcitrant, ongoing, rebellious son. So God, in Genesis 9, after Noah and his family came off the ark, it was that point in time that God instituted capital punishment in Genesis 9 to demonstrate the sanctity of life, where if by man's hand life is taken, then that man's life is to be sacrificed. He's to be executed for the offense of murder. But then for the nation of Israel, for God to keep the nation of Israel a unique people and group and to keep them pure and to keep them to prepare for the coming of Messiah, God expanded out to another 30 plus capital punishment offenses besides murder. Um, for the New Testament church, we know from Romans 13 that we still have capital punishment for murder, but not all these other ones. But again, for the nation of Israel, this is what God says. For example, Leviticus 20, verse 9. If there is anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. 
he has cursed his father or his mother, his blood guiltiness is upon him. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death. And you might say, that's, that's why that's so harsh. Well, the rest of the verse tells us why it's so harsh, why it's so important. At the end of verse 21, so you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear of it and fear. So again, beloved, this is massively important. Again, in the New Testament church, we don't need to worry about that. So if you're a rebellious child, we pray that you would repent, but you don't run the risk of that in any economy, in any <laughs> culture, at least, well, you shouldn't. <laughs> well, Paul continues verse 2. He says, honor your father and mother, and then parenthetically, which is the first commandment with a promise, with a promise, epangelia. The Greek word translated as promise comes from the same root word we get the word angel, messenger. And what's fascinating is this, this word promise, epangelia, it appeared very often in, Greek, in classic Greek literature, but in all the instances where it's been found, it is only used of men making promises to other men or men making promises to their lowercase gods. You never see, they haven't found a single instance where this word describes a God making a promise to man. But in the New Testament, in God's word, this word promise is only used of God promising things to man. God is the only promise keeper you find in the pages of Scripture. It is God who makes the promises and it's God who keeps his promises. So, Beloved, you, are, you were created by God. That's the first motivation to obey and honor your parents. You're commanded by God to honor your father and mother. The third motivation is you're rewarded when you do this thing. Now, we know that God, if God says it, that settles it, period. Nothing else is needed. So we could stop at verses 1 and 2, and that's all we would need to know to do what we need to do. But as is almost always the case, our gracious Father in heaven gives reason, motivation, and reward for doing what he commands us to do. Creation demands it, God commands it, and God rewards it. And really what we see here in verse 3 is God blesses us for doing what we should have done in the first place. And what we see in verse 3 is, when you do this thing, you'll enjoy a quality of life and a quantity of life. You'll enjoy a rich life and a full life. Um, there's a productivity and there's longevity. In verse 3, he says, so that, purpose statement, it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And this is also taking the quote from the fifth commandment in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But what Paul does is he tweaks it a little, little bit. When God gave the fifth commandment to the nation of Israel, <clears throat> for example, Exodus 20:12, honor your father and your mother 
so that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That was a specific land promise that God had given to the nation of Israel, a promise that he still will fulfill later on when a majority of the nation of Israel turns and repents and mourns for the Messiah whom they have pierced. But there's no land promise in the New Testament church. We know from our wonderful walk through Ephesians that we have the mystery of the church, Jew and Gentile together in one redeemed human in the body of Christ. So what Paul does is he tweaks it away from the land promised to the nation of Israel, which again still will be realized later on in the future for Israel. But for us, he brings it out and talks about the richness of life and the fullness of life that we will enjoy. And beloved, what he is bringing out here is we know from Scripture as a general rule, obedience and honor foster self-discipline. Self-discipline, in turn, brings stability, longevity, and well-being. And the longevity aspect, this obviously doesn't mean that every single child that obeys mother and father and honors mother and father will live to be 99. But what that means in the spectrum of where it's at, it will increase your longevity. It will increase the fullness of your life because disobedience and dishonor promote a lack of discipline. A lack of discipline in turn brings instability, a shortened life, and a vacuum of well-being, an absence of shalom. And the reality is we have a tsunami of children living in a world, and all of us living in a world which is witnessing an alarming breakdown in the matter of discipline. Lawlessness is rampant. Virtues which were once more or less taken for granted are no longer merely challenged in question, but are ridiculed and dismissed at hand. It might make one think of uh, Marcellus commenting on the appearance of the ghost of Hamlet's father, saying there's something rotten in Denmark in Shakespeare's play Hamlet. Shakespeare actually was, besides being a little bit of a writer, was also a historian, especially on Rome. And Shakespeare attributed the fall of Rome to internal rot, namely the secularization of Rome and the liberalization of Rome. And I'll say this too, it's interesting. When we understand even the capital punishment offense, of what we looked at before from Leviticus and from Deuteronomy in the nation of Israel for a continuously rebellious, recalcitrant son that helps us understand the weight behind the corporal punishment. The capital punishment for Israel for rebellious children helps us understand and maybe fleshes out even a little more the exhortations towards corporal punishment, spanking. In Proverbs 23, verse 14, you shall... Spank him, you shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from Sheol, from the grave. You see, beloved, back here in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, this is not merely about harmony in the house. This is not merely about behavior control. For, for, the, little, for the little ones, yeah, it's about behavior control. But as they, they grow up, it becomes less and less about behavior control, all the while shepherding the heart. This is not merely some kind of family detente, some kind of ceasing of uh, hostility while it still dwells on the inside. There's a much larger gospel issue at stake. And that takes us back to that little phrase we tabled for a moment back in verse 1. Obey your parents in the Lord. 
the Spirit. This is the Spirit in which you obey, gospel-centered and grace-enabled. It flows even along the lines of the exhortation given to the wives back in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Or the exhortation to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Beloved, in conclusion, let's begin where, or excuse me, let's end where we began with Jesus. Turn in closing to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, we see Jesus go from, we go from baby Jesus to boy Jesus, and then at the very end, from boy Jesus to man Jesus. Luke chapter 2, in verse 40. So up to this point, we've seen baby Jesus. Verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, so he's right there on the cusp from boyhood to manhood, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about that after three days, and, and just so real quick there, so the caravan went out, Joseph and Mary might have been in different locations, and even in the caravan, in the front of the caravan, they would have the mothers with the babies and the young children, and then it would go back to the stronger adults. So Jesus was, again, right at the cusp between boyhood and manhood, two parents, a day out, they realize he's not there, they spend a day going back, and then they're looking for him for a day, and that takes us back here to the end of verse 46. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And you see, he was surprised. He wasn't at all surprised that they were looking for him. He was surprised that they didn't know where to find him, that he would be in his father's house, about his father's business. Verse 50, and they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. So up to this point, this is probably, this is surely the favorite child Bible study of all. I mean, here the child's right and mom and dad are wrong. <laughs> but look at what it says in verse 51 before we get too happy about that. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So Jesus the boy who is becoming Jesus the man had the full, complete, total, perfect, sinless obedience of the fifth commandment, of honoring mother and father, and even of what Paul said, of being in subjection and obeying mother and father. And he was doing it even of ones who didn't get the whole picture. He's submitting to the imperfect authority above him that doesn't fully understand him. And then finally, verse 52 
And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So what you have in verse 40 is boy Jesus transitioning, excuse me, a baby Jesus transitioning to boy Jesus. And it says he continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. But then in verse 52, you have boy Jesus transitioning to man Jesus. He kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So it's interesting, even there in the perfect humanity of Jesus, as he's going from baby to boy, first is the strength, then there's the wisdom. But when he's transitioning and growing and maturing, from boy to man, wisdom is first and then stature. Beloved, our Savior grew intellectually, physically, spiritually, socially. That's what all of us as children need to continue to do on this side of glory, and that's what we pray for our children. And in Proverbs 3, verses 3 and 4, Solomon said, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so then you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. It's the word of God. It's the kindness and truth by which we grow in wisdom. Whether that's the secondary measure at the younger age or that's the first measure at the later ages. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for, the, your, for your perfection, for your holiness. We praise you and thank you for the institutions, the organisms, the organization, the, the blessing of family, the blessing of husband and wife, uh, the blessing of parent and child. Thank you for even the institution of work, of employers and employees, and even the extremely imperfect governing authorities that are above us, Lord. All these things are good. To be sure, this world is marred by sin. You made everything perfectly good. But Lord, we praise you and thank you that you provide a way of escape from the punishment of our sin at the cross. And we praise you and thank you that you provide everything to us needed for godliness and needed to walk and to navigate through these treacherous waters. Bless this church. Bless the young children in our midst. Put life where there was no life. Save them even at a young age. Bless the mothers and fathers. Bless our singles. Bless older people that have even older parents. Help us all to honor our fathers and mothers and to love and cherish and shepherd and nourish our children and our siblings. And thank you for our beloved family of God in our midst. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. And a quick word uh, before we get into the music. So I'm actually not, you, you're actually gonna have to wait for four weeks to get to verse four because next Sunday I'm gonna do a special one-off on lessons for children out of Proverbs. Uh, we are so blessed by our children's ministry here. And as I think we've announced a couple times, if you're a qualified man or woman, uh, hey, right here, you can, you can help make disciples even of young children from Christ. So we're very blessed by that. We have a number of families that like to have even their younger children with them. So there's freedom in the church to do that. I would invite that if you have children of an age to understand this next Sunday, they're welcome to come. They're always welcome, if you wish. But even if they're normally in children's ministry, if you would like to have them in here with the message from Proverbs. And again, age to understand, I don't think my granddaughter, Aria, 
that uh, these words would be a hill of beans to her. So use your wisdom in that. Uh, but that's what we'll be doing. Then I'll be going to California for my beloved Rebecca's wedding. Uh, so David, Pastor David, will be bringing messages a couple Sundays. And then after that, we'll pick up verse 4.